Section twenty five of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Elizabeth of England, Part Four. In various ways her peace was constantly disturbed and her temper injured. In 1556, two insurrections broke out, headed by adventurous aspirants for her hand and a share in her expected sovereignty. The first was that of Sir Henry Dudley. Two of her officers were implicated in it, and she narrowly escaped suffering by their treason. The next revolt, a few weeks after, was raised by an impostor, and proclaimed Elizabeth Queen and himself King as her husband. From another danger she escaped only through the honesty of the new French ambassador. Wearied out with court intrigues respecting her, she twice applied to him to secure her safe passage to France. At last he plainly told her that if she ever hoped to ascend the throne, she must never leave England. But the Queen was prostrate with mortal sickness in November 1558, and Elizabeth's anxieties for herself were soon to cease. Mary bequeathed her crown to her, and secured some kind of promise that she would maintain the Catholic religion. In fact, she observed the ceremonies of that church for a month after her sister's death, when she found that the Protestants were certainly in the majority. Mary sent her the crown jewels, and Philip added a precious casket. In gratitude for such favours, Elizabeth always retained his portrait in her bedchamber. As the Queen failed in strength, the courtiers, as usual at such times, forsook their late mistress and crowded around the expectant successor to the crown. Yet so cautious was Elizabeth that she would assume no airs of royalty until she was certified of the Queen's death by private means. She engaged Sir Nicholas Throckmorton to procure Her Majesty's black enamelled ring, which she always wore as a bridal one so soon as she ceased to breathe, and ride with it to her at his utmost speed. This he commemorates in verse. She said, since naught exceedeth woman's fears who still dread some baits of subtlety, Sir Nicholas, know a ring my sister wears, enamelled black, a pledge of loyalty, the which the King of Spain in spousals gave. If aught fall out amiss, tis that I crave. When the news came, she knelt and repeated in Latin the sacred words, It is the Lord's doing, it is marvellous in our eyes. This was afterwards engraved on her gold plate, and another text, I have chosen God for my helper, was written, likewise in Latin, on her silver service. On the seventeenth day of November, 1558, Mary expired, and Elizabeth was proclaimed Queen. 
great trouble was anticipated in consequence of the distracted state of religious parties and the late bloody persecutions by the papists but it all passed off peaceably the catholic lord chancellor nobly secured the recognition of elizabeth by parliament the people worn out with tyranny and terrified by a pestilence that swept the kingdom and strangely attacked many high ecclesiastics hailed the new sovereign with joy the bells were pealed bonfires lighted and the poor were publicly feasted by the rich queen elizabeth appointed cecil her secretary of state and retained him so long as he lived and his course proved the true policy of her choice in a few days she took her journey to london followed by a splendid procession of nobility and multitudes of the people who had often before enthusiastically crowded to see and hail her to the people she ascribed her quiet succession to the sceptre on her way she met a company of bishops and offered her hand to be kissed by each excepting bonner who had become notorious for his cruelty in persecuting nonconformists as she approached the city she rode in a costly chariot but entered the streets on horseback her dress was of purple velvet with a scarf over her shoulders and lord robert dudley her henceforth chief pet rode next to her before her were borne the sceptre and sword of state the walls of the city then existing were hung with tapestry and music everywhere resounded while the tower guns were continually discharged at various points children were in waiting to welcome her with songs or set speeches nothing escaped her eye she responded to everything knowing well how far every attention goes in attaching the people to one in high station it was always her rule to gain over all enemies and lose no friend reaching the tower she went directly to the rooms where she had been imprisoned fell on her knees and thanked god comparing herself to daniel escaped from the lion's den a few days after she removed her court to somerset palace her first care was to ascertain by shrewd experiments how far she might restore the independent church and government of her father after this on the day preceding her coronation she made a procession through the city the lord mayor and his city companies says a chronicler met her on the thames with their barges decked with banners of their crafts and mysteries his own company the mercers had a bachelor's barge and an attendant foist with artillery shooting off lustily as they went with great and pleasant melody of instruments which played in a sweet and heavenly manner landing at the tower she left it in a chariot covered with crimson velvet and overshadowed with a canopy borne by knights one who was in the procession records that quote, the queen as she entered the city was received by the people with prayers welcomings cries and tender words and all signs which argue an earnest love of subjects towards their sovereign 
and the queen, by holding up her hands and glad countenance to such as stood afar off, and most tender language to those that stood nigh her grace, showed herself no less thankful to receive the people's goodwill than they to offer it. End quote. Frequently she stopped her chariot to receive gifts of flowers from poor women in the concourse. At the upper end of Gracechurch Street, beneath a splendid arch, had been erected a stage in three stories. On the lowest platform were effigies of the Queen's grandparents. Elizabeth of York, in the midst of a gigantic artificial white rose, at her side was Henry the Seventh, peeping from a mammoth red rose, and holding his consort by the hand. From these roses a stem reached to the next higher stage, where the Queen's father was represented in the centre of a grand red and white rose, and holding Anne Boleyn by the hand. Another branch proceeded from this to the highest platform, where Elizabeth herself was counterfeited on a throne. Thus was her genealogy, embracing the houses of York and Lancaster, very ingeniously set forth and thus was Anne Boleyn at length honoured. Many other devices, such as Father Time, the Beatitudes, Deborah, etc., were to be seen. Through all this remarkable display, the maiden queen acted her part with consummate address, according to the taste of the period. In later times it would have been regarded as ludicrously theatrical, when she held up hands and eyes to heaven, while certain speeches and songs were recited to her. At her coronation the next day, she was duly attired with crimson velvet, ermine, and buttons, cords, and tassels of gold. The usual elaborate ceremonies were observed, much to the edification of all concerned, if we accept the anointing with oil which Her Majesty so much disliked that she retired to change her dress, remarking to her maids that the oil was grease and smelled ill. At the banquet in Westminster Hall, which concluded the drama, the customary champion rode into the room in complete armour, and offered to defend against all gainsayers the, quote, most high and mighty princess, our dread sovereign Lady Elizabeth, by the grace of God, Queen of England, France, Ireland, defender of the true, ancient, and Catholic faith, most worthy empress from the Orcade Isles to the mountains Pyrenees. Here ends the truly heroical period of Elizabeth's life. She was now twenty-five years of age, had bravely and discreetly held her course through a sea of early troubles, and was so firmly established on the throne that the occasional plots of malcontents could not seriously affect her safety. Her long career was one of eminent worldly wisdom, but a wisdom that was confined to her personal interests, and did not, like that of Maria Theresa, or Isabella of Spain, embrace the national welfare. The unprecedented prosperity of England during her reign was due to the peace which she selfishly maintained, and to other causes than her conduct. 
her deceitful and cruel course towards Mary, Queen of Scots, belongs properly to the history of the latter. It was prompted by well-grounded fears, but carried to the pitch of despicable jealousy and unscrupulous malignity. This and the other leading events of Elizabeth's administration, unlike her youthful life, are too well known to require a detailed recital. As a rare picture of good Queen Bess in her thirty-first year, we have the account of a conference with her enjoyed by Melville, a Scottish ambassador. The morning after his arrival in London, he was admitted to an audience by Elizabeth, whom he found pacing an alley in her garden. The business upon which he came being arranged satisfactorily, Melville was favourably and familiarly treated by the English Queen. He remained at her court nearly a fortnight, and conversed with Her Majesty every day, sometimes thrice on the same day. Sir James, who was a shrewd observer, had thus an opportunity of remarking the many weaknesses and vanities which characterised Elizabeth. In allusion to her extreme love of power, he ventured to say to her, when she informed him she never intended to marry, Madam, you need not tell me that. I know your stately stomach. You think if you were married you would be but Queen of England, and now you are King and Queen both. You may not suffer a commander. Elizabeth was fortunately not offended at this freedom. She took Sir James upon one occasion into her bedchamber, and opened a little case in which were several miniature pictures. The pretence was to show him a likeness of Mary, but her real object was that he should observe in her possession a miniature of her favourite, the Earl of Leicester, upon which she had written with her own hand, My Lord's Picture. When Melville made this discovery, Elizabeth affected a little amiable confusion. I held the candle, says Sir James, and pressed to see my lord's picture, albeit she was loath to let me see it. At length I by importunity obtained sight thereof, and asked the same to carry home to the queen, which she refused, alleging that she had but that one of his. At another time Elizabeth talked with Sir James of the different costumes of different countries. She told him she had dresses of many sorts, and she appeared in a new one every day during his continuance at court. Sometimes she was dressed after the English, sometimes after the French, and sometimes after the Italian fashion. She asked Sir James which he thought became her best. He said the Italian, quote, Wilk pleased her wheel, for she delighted to show her golden-coloured hair, wearing a kell and bonnet as they do in Italy. Her hair was redder than yellow, and apparently of nature, end quote. Elizabeth herself seems to have been quite contented with its hue, for she very complacently asked Sir James whether she or Mary had the finer hair. Sir James, having replied as politely as possible, she proceeded to inquire which he considered the more beautiful. The ambassador quaintly answered that the beauty of either was not her worst fault. 
this evasion would not serve though melville for many sufficient reasons was unwilling to say anything more definite he told her that she was the fairest queen in england and mary the fairest in scotland still this was not enough sir james ventured therefore one step further they were both he said the fairest ladies of their courts and that the queen of england was whiter but our queen was very lussome elizabeth next asked which of them was of highest stature sir james told her the queen of scots then she said the queen was over high and that herself was neither over high nor over lay then she asked it what kind of exercises she used i said that as i was dispatched out of scotland the queen was but new come back from the highland hunting and that when she had leisure frae the affairs of her country she read upon good books the histories of divers countries and sometimes would play upon the lute and virginals she spirit gin she played weel i said reasonably for a queen End quote. This account of Mary's accomplishments piqued Elizabeth's vanity, and determined her to give Melville some display of her own. Accordingly, next day one of the lords-in-waiting took him to a quiet gallery, where, as if by chance, he might hear the Queen play upon the virginals. After listening a little, Melville perceived well enough that he might take the liberty of entering the chamber whence the music came. Elizabeth coquettishly left off as soon as she saw him, and coming forward, tapped him with her hand, and affected to feel ashamed of being caught, declaring that she never played before company, but only when alone, to keep off melancholy. Melville made her a flattering speech, protesting that the music he had heard was of so exquisite a kind that it had irresistibly drawn him into the room. Elizabeth, who does not seem to have thought, as people are usually supposed to do in polite society, that comparisons are odious, could not rest satisfied without putting as usual the question whether Mary or she played best. Melville gave the English Queen the palm. Being now in good humour, she resolved that Sir James should have a specimen of her learning, which it was well known degenerated too much into pedantry. She praised his French, asking if he could also speak Italian, which she said she herself spoke reasonably well. She spoke to him also in Dutch, but Sir James says it was not good. Afterward she insisted upon his seeing her dance, and when her performance was over, she put the old question whether she or Mary danced best. Melville answered, The Queen danced it not so high and disposedly as she did. Melville returned to Scotland, quote, convinced in his judgment that in Elizabeth's conduct there was neither plain dealing nor upright meaning, but great dissimulation, emulation, and fear that Mary's princely qualities should too soon chase her out and displace her from the kingdom. End quote. 
surely such exquisite vanity as this description reveals could hardly belong to a mind of such breadth and power whatever cunning it may have possessed the great events of elizabeth's reign were the establishment of protestantism and the war with spain signalized by the defeat of the invincible armada the motives of her renunciation of the pope's authority have been mentioned she displayed the most admirable prudence in effecting a peaceable revolution of the national religion and the beneficial consequences of it to the world cannot be overestimated england and scotland were for a long time the sole champions of religious reform among the nations and nobly did they maintain their cause whatever were the faults and the springs of action of those who governed these two countries during this most critical period of the church a great debt of gratitude is for ever due to their firmness and intrepidity End of section 25